AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save Save over $130 million. To save, visit healthlock.com today. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey, welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I only wanted to see you laughing in the laser lightning. I'm Joe McCormick. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, and our other host, Jonathan Strickland, is out today. He is on a lovely vacation, I believe, in an old tiny barrel boat. Yeah, he's circumnavigating the globe in a uh, in an old tiny wooden bathtub. Oh, wooden bathtub, not barrel boat. Uh, completely my mistake. Yeah. I apologize. But uh, we have, in his absence, welcomed our wonderful coworker Julie Douglas in to speak with us. Hello. How are you doing today, Julie? I'm doing well. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, I feel like I got a little something in my step. I think it's all this weather control talk. Uh-huh. Mm. So this is going to be part two of a two-part series. Uh, we, we did 
part one last time with Julie talking about uh, some of the history leading up to the present of weather control. And today we're going to focus on some potential future technologies for weather control. So if you haven't heard part one yet, you should go back, download that, listen to that one first. That was the podcast that was released directly before this one. Uh, yeah, because we, we've been through some of, uh, the concepts of why weather is, is such a problem to, to suss out, why controlling it is difficult and what kind of projects people have been working on up through today to try to do that kind of stuff. Also, you will miss out on a story about Buddhist monks fleeing from the rain, <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut's brother, mm -hmm. and some other choice bits. Yeah. Okay, but if you're here and you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. Don't You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going <laughs> to listen to this part, this one first. Maybe we should do a, a super quick rundown on what we covered last time just to bring you up to speed. So, so we did talk about... Uh, the proposed strata shield. It was a, uh, a solution, a geoengineering solution for combating global warming. It's essentially a hose that goes up into the sky held up by balloons where you can pump some particles into the atmosphere that will reflect back some of the sun's light and cool the earth. But it has been also pointed out that if we were to invent something like this, a side effect would be that it could be used for weather warfare. Ain't that right, Julie? Yeah. It's kind of like wah, wah, part of that. Yeah. Then we also talked about uh, essentially some of the main problems with with the human relationship with weather and human weather modification efforts in the past, like why it's so difficult to control the weather. Uh, a couple of the principles we touched on were that weather involves vast amounts of energy, way more energy than we realize, uh, even though it seems like it would hurt more to get hit by a truck than blown by the wind. There's a lot more wind than truck. Wiser words I have never spoken. I'll never forget it, Lauren. Those will stick with me for the rest of my life. And then the other thing being, of course, the mathematical complexity and, and chaos of weather, how small variations and perturbations can become magnified over time that makes weather systems inherently unstable and difficult to predict. Uh, yeah. Then we, we talked about a few of the attempts that have been made to control weather uh, through hail cannons, mm -hmm, which is, uh, uh, as far as we can tell, pretty much just garbage. Uh, mm -hmm. Scientists don't seem to think there's any evidence they work. But one that's uh, where the jury is maybe still out a little bit would be cloud seeding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And cloud seeding is something that has been used for decades. And so, I mean, the idea behind it is that it does have an effect on the weather. Perhaps it does create rain. But to what extent? We just don't know yet. That being said, there are many countries that are invested in weather management systems like cloud seeding. And then we talked about how uh, how predictive modeling, if we can figure out how to accurately predict the weather, we can at the very least get people to safety and get them full of fried chicken when, when a storm is coming. <laughs> yes. Man, you keep outdoing yourself for them wise words. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's that's about where we wrapped. Uh, and so, yeah, so let's let's go into the the potential future of weather control. One thing that I think you're going to notice is that in this discussion, there are going to be a lot of maybes, <laughs> which is not all that uh, unfamiliar if you're a fan of forward thinking and discussions about future technology. I mean, if, if there were no maybes left lingering, it wouldn't be future technology. It'd be present technology. True. But uh, I think especially in weather control, there's a lot of uncertainty about exactly what can be done 
And so uh, you're going to hear that crop up a few times, and maybe we can talk a little bit in the end about why that is. But but I do want to talk about some of the coolest proposals we have come across for using technology to manipulate uh, or protect ourselves from the weather. Now, one that you mutter about at our office windows basically every day, <laughs> this is actually a very intricate intervention for you, Joe, <laughs> is, is lasers. You're constantly just face pressed against the glass talking to clouds about lasers. Mm-hmm. Doing the pew pew noise. <laughs> oh, you should see the world from my perspective. I mean, when other people open their mouths, words don't come out. I just hear pew pew. <laughs> Like this, Morse codes of pew pew. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this explains a lot, actually. <laughs> but no, that there are real proposals. One one thing I do want to talk about that I think was really cool, and and we'll see uh, how applicable or not this might be to real weather control. But uh, but is uh, experiments about summoning clouds with lasers. So, so like, what if the problem is I don't have any rain clouds and I want rain clouds. Could Lace, you do lasers? It? Yeah, you could sure. do it with lasers. That's the proposal. Uh, so, I, so I came across an interesting May 2010 article in New Scientist about this. And what it mentioned is that researchers in Europe have found a way to use lasers to trigger the condensation of water in the atmosphere. In other words, they can cause the formation of rain clouds uh, under lab conditions and they claim under natural conditions all via lasers. So here's how your experiment goes. You start with a container of very cold, very humid air. So this is going to be water-saturated air at like negative 24 degrees Celsius. Uh, sort of the conditions of, of the atmosphere when it might start raining. Sure. You want, yeah, you want it to be very cold and very humid. Uh, so these are sort of ideal conditions for uh-huh. the cloud to form. Uh, and then you fire short pulses of this extremely high-energy infrared laser into the container. And along the path of the laser, you can see the formation of clouds. Now, why does that happen? Well, the uh, explanation given is by one of the researchers involved, and that's Jerome Kasparian from the University of Geneva, uh, explains, quote, that the laser pulses generate clouds by stripping electrons from atoms in the air, which encourage the formation of hydroxyl radicals. Those convert sulfur and nitrogen dioxides in the air into particles that act as seeds to grow water droplets. So actually, this has a little bit in common with the cloud seeding yeah. we talked about. So yeah, if, just a different method. Yeah. If, if what you do in cloud seeding is you fly over or through a cloud uh, and you disperse little particles into the cloud, for example, silver iodide, or you fire silver iodide particles into a cloud with a rocket – what you're hoping will happen is that water will uh, coalesce around these tiny particles. The particles will act as nuclei for raindrops or snowflakes. And here you're sort of doing the same thing, but instead of shooting particles into the cloud, you're creating these little particle seeds in the air. Yeah, you're, you're manipulating the, the particles that are already there and changing them so that they will become these the seed capable. Yeah. And so they found that in these in the experiment, after they fired lasers into the chamber, the volume of condensed water droplets had increased by 50 percent in the Ooh. chamber. Huh. And so that that's good under lab conditions. But the big question is, is this going to work in wild skies? Right. Because the chamber is very easy to create those conditions and control them. Right. 
So the author of the article spoke to one scientist who was skeptical that it would work in wild skies. But to counter that, Kasparian claimed that the team had tried out the experiment 60 meters over the skies of Berlin, and they said it worked. According to Kasparian, weather LIDAR showed, quote, the density and size of water droplets spiked when the laser was fired. And this was over the open air. Where do you file paperwork to get permission to shoot a, a high frequency, high power laser into the air over a city? Berlin, may I modify your weather? I wonder what cities are the most lenient about <laughs> weather modification. Like, which are the ones where it's it's a pretty easy process? I actually wouldn't think that Berlin would be for that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I would mean, think that many places would not be for that. Right. I mean, that that city has many people in it. <laughs> the government's pretty solid. Uh, but, of course, they're not claiming that this is going to form like a volcano in the sky. That right. You know, it's just sure. like it's what they're saying is it's a rain cloud. I guess you could be worried like, well, what exactly could happen if something goes wrong? This is an extremely high energy laser. Oh, and the laser had a name. It's it's a great name, too. It was called the Terramobile, which is from its terawatt power and its mobility. So you can wheel the Terramobile through the streets of Berlin at night. So, uh, A, that's great. I want to name many things the Terramobile. B, uh, that, that was back in 2010. Mm -hmm. uh, are there any updates on our cloud laser since then? Yeah, it looks like this general line of research is ongoing. So in 2014, I found that there was a, a University of Central Florida press release about research in the university's optics and photonics department about how to optimize known methods of laser cloud formation. And their suggestion was you add a buddy beam. So instead Aww. of just having one laser beam, you sort of dress the original beam in a surrounding lower intensity laser beam that would extend its range higher and farther into the atmosphere. Uh, I so, so it, always approve of the buddy system. Um, yes. And it, <laughs> it's a good system even for lasers. But it looks like th this line of research is ongoing. And and this is not the only weather-related laser research going on. No, I want to get into even slightly more Bond villainy territory. So in March 2012, a new research published in AIP Advances showed that you can probably, in principle, use lasers to attract and direct strikes of lightning. This one is fascinating to me. How you like that. This is like straight-up Thor stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, normally, what does lightning do? How does lightning choose where it goes from place to place? Uh, it finds the tallest object that it can strike. Yeah, it's the path of least resistance between two objects, and that usually means the shortest path. It's the nearest object, which, when it's coming down from the sky, is going to be the tallest thing. So there are extremely powerful lasers that can ionize air along their path. So that means that the air molecules that are caught in the gaze of this cruel laser beam are stripped of their electrons and become free-floating charged particles. They, they become ions. Uh, and you can use this principle to create pathways of ionized air called filaments that electricity likes to follow. Hmm. And so a group led by Andre Masirowitz, uh, has done work on getting high voltage discharge, which is similar to lightning to follow these kinds of filaments. And in 2012, they published findings showing that they were able to get this discharge under lab conditions to ignore its straight line from A to B approach and instead follow the laser ionized filaments to their destination. So you can essentially plot a course for electricity to take through the air by using these uh, these uh, lasers. 
So you could reroute the lightning from unsuspecting golfers. Mm-hmm. In theory. <laughs> That's true. This technology mainly applies to golfers. I thought so. From the Golf Association, it was uh, funded by. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, this is very interesting because in theory, what it means is that if you have a powerful enough laser and you design just the right types of pulses of laser light, this principle could be exploited to use lasers to guide lightning wherever you want it to go. And that could mean away from my house or it could mean on to Jeffrey. Ah, so in a sense, it could be used for warfare as well. I think I think any time that you start talking about controlling the weather, you have the potential for for warfare. Although directing lightning strikes is yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> sounds way worse than rain. I I on one hand, I think that's true. It sounds worse, but it, it's weird. It's weird keeping levels of violence in perspective because sure. lightning might strike one person and kill them in a very spectacular and shocking way. But if you can cause enough rain that an area floods, you might yeah. be able to kill hundreds of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think you, you mentioned that in uh, in Vietnam, when, when they were conducting the experiments, some, some of the flooding that may or may not have been caused by cloud seeding uh, did result in, in deaths there. Yeah, yeah. There was a, a certain bridge that during the Vietnam War that they were just trying to bomb over and over again. But they, they cloud seeded the area, and lo and behold, they... they yeah, they created so much uh, rain that it began to flood and it destroyed the bridge and flooded the valley and, and people died as a result. OK, what about another avenue of wet weather control that I know I've heard something about on them Internet forums? And that would be high power radio transmitters. Uh, yeah, we, we said we said in our first episode on this topic that we've never really covered weather control on this show before or, or on, on this podcast before specifically. Uh, but we did once talk about a technology that does not control the weather as far as we can reasonably discern. And that's HARP, the high frequency active auroral research program stationed in Alaska. Uh, one of the devices involved in HARP can send specific types of radio waves into the ionosphere for a whole bunch of different research and, and potential communication purposes. And fringe theories based in what seem to be misinformed interpretations of not only the technology at hand, but also like the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, these fringe theories suggest that the facility could be used to change and or control the weather. And, and okay, in some applications, HARP would heat and or excite small controlled portions of the ionosphere for short periods of time. And this can move chunks of, of air soup around a bit, because as we have talked about many times on the show, air is not thin. It is soup. It's a thin soup. But at any rate, uh, <laughs> uh, so as far as we can tell, though, in the ways that HARP has been used and even in the ways in which it could potentially be used if someone was trying to do this, it wouldn't make an appreciable difference to either local or global weather. Yeah. And I think the grain of truth in this, which is I think you sort of mentioned it, is that some parts of the radio frequency spectrum can cause heating, like, for example, the way microwaves can cause heating of water molecules. Oh, sure. And and HARP would heat portions of the atmosphere a little mm -hmm. bit uh, of, the, of the ionosphere specifically. I mean, the thing is, is that the amount of radiation being applied to the ionosphere every second of every day by the sun and everything mm -hmm. else outside of the earth is tremendous. And so th these small, short disturbances or, or periods of excitement 
you know, sure, they could have an effect. And, and we talked before about how the number of variables involved in, in weather are what make it so tricky to figure out. So it's something that you would want to watch, but, but it's not, it's not a super weapon. Uh, and, and it's not being used to, to strike down airplanes or anything like that. If you want to turn, tune into the full episode that we did, uh, it's called What Does Harp Do? And it published in February of 2014. Um, at that time, Harp had been shut down due to budget cuts and its future was was very uncertain. There's an update there. Its ownership is currently being transferred from the Air Force to the Geophysical Institute of the University of Alaska Fairbanks, which is going to operate Harp on a pay-per-use basis. Oh, great. So they're going to rent it out to whatever supervillain wants it that week. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but I mean, OK, so so we'll have to start taking data from from those experiments into account the same way that we do for for any technology and for for any bit of human civilization in general because mm. because of course the cities that we build the stuff that we do has an effect on local weather uh yeah and of course i wouldn't put it out of the question that uh that experiments in bombarding the ionosphere or I- any of the stuff up there with different radio frequencies couldn't turn up knowledge that could potentially be used in for example microwave control of cyclones which is something that we'll talk about in a bit Oh, sure, sure. It, it might turn out that, that some of this could nudge weather systems in one way or another, especially if we built like a whole lot of these things in very key places around the world. Uh, for right now, it's nothing that, that certainly that anyone needs to be worrying about. Um, and, and it's uncertain whether it will ever come to fruition. So what you're saying is there's still more wind than truck. There's still more wind than truck. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to talk about one of the funniest weather control proposals I've come across. <laughs> Okay. Uh, and this, this I think falls more into the category of geoengineering rather than direct weather control. So th- these are two things we should sort of, uh, recognize are at different ends of a spectrum, you might say. Whereas, uh, something like cloud seeding is designed to affect, uh, have a temporal effect, a temporally limited effect on a specific weather pattern, like make that cloud rain now. Uh, whereas these other projects like geoengineering projects want to fundamentally change the uh, the climate in a particular eco region or something like that. And this particular proposition ties into a joke I've made on this very podcast before that we should protect ourselves from hurricanes by doing what we do best in the United States and building a wall along the southeastern coast of the United States stretching up to the top of the atmosphere. I mean, that'd do it, wouldn't it? it? But you're, you're surely not just bringing this up in, in jest again. You're, you're unfortunately bringing it up because this has been an actual proposal. Yeah. Well, strangely enough, so, something kind of like this has been proposed in, uh, in the scientific literature, not to protect Florida from a hurricane, but to protect Tornado Alley from, uh, the next spate of killer twisters. So in 2014, a Temple University physicist named Ranjia Dow, suggested in a paper for International Journal of Modern Physics B that you could build a series of three gigantic walls to stop tornadoes in the in in the United States, in the tornado alley in the Midwest and the southern central United States. So how how would that work? Because, I mean, obviously, I, it's not what you're thinking. It's not that you put up a wall around the city so that the tornado can't get in. It's hard to envision just because I think about this, these vast plains, right? Mm-hmm. Which I understand that the vast plains are, you know, 
part and parcel of the reason why there are so many tornadoes. Yeah. So uh, Dow claims that the problem, the, the reason these tornadoes form is that the Midwest region between the Rocky Mountains and the uh, the Appalachian Mountains is very flat. And that in this flat landscape, warm southern air currents from the Gulf of Mexico rush up and meet cold northern air currents coming down from the north. And they form these vortexes that turn into tornadoes. And uh, Tao points out that in the northern China Plain and the eastern China Plain, there, there's sort of similar areas in China. They experience mixing of air currents, but they have far fewer extreme tornadoes. And And he claims that this is because there are three small mountain chains running from east to west, which act as buffers for the north-south winds and prevent the formation of these vortexes that become tornadoes. Tornado Alley doesn't really have any mountain ranges like this, but Tao argues that if we built a series of three gigantic east-west walls, each about 300 meters high, so that'd be about a thousand feet, and 50 meters wide, about 165 feet, we could simulate China's mountain ranges and attenuate the circumstances that lead to the formation of tornadoes. What do y'all think? Uh, an eyesore first. <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever driven through there? I would sort of welcome. You could put up some really great art on those walls. It would it would spice up a lot of of coast to coast driving experiences. Uh, you know, actually, the the potential for graffiti is tremendous. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just think about the natural shapes of mountain ranges and the way that the the air flows through. And, and it seems to me like this, in my mind, this is like one big homogenous hunk of concrete or I don't know what material. <laughs> and it, and you'd have, it wouldn't be able to replicate sort of the natural formations that mountains have. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if that's a factor influencing it or not, but many experts actually, I, I shouldn't even say many experts, all experts I could find who had commented on this proposal have expressed serious skepticism about it. I, I mean, just the cost alone. I, I mean, I, and I don't want to downplay the, the the cost that these damaging tornadoes have on, sure. on on livestock and crops and people's lives and all of that. And and I'm and I'm sure it's tremendous. I I find it difficult to believe that anyone would greenlight this project. <laughs> well, yeah, the obvious questions about the cost aside, uh, the, the experts materials. think that this is. This has been widely characterized as completely nuts. Uh, I don't want to be, uh, to be unfair to Tao. Like, I, oh, sure. you know, I'm not, I'm myself not an expert, not a meteorologist who could comment on this, but all the experts I've read were just like, no, that won't work. Uh, for example, Professor Joshua Werman of the Center for Severe Weather Research, uh, he gave some comments to BBC News about this. And he said, for example, the model has an, a very oversimplified view of how tornadoes are formed. So, so Tao takes into account the rushing warm air from the Gulf and the, the cold air rushing down to meet it. And they sort of converge and create these vortexes. Uh, but the truth, like pretty much everything about weather events, as we've established, is much more complex and complicated than that. There are other factors that determine how tornadoes are formed. For example, ground-based structures of the size might be able to partially decelerate low-lying air currents, but they wouldn't be able to affect the dynamics of high-altitude air masses. Hmm. Uh, Werman also claims that Tao's proposed walls would not be big enough, <laughs> and as big as they sound, wouldn't be big enough. But uh, he says they, they need to be more on the scale of the Alps, so like 2,000 to 3,000 meters high. 
but he notes that if you did that, that would essentially be a, that would be a true geoengineering project where that would result in extreme climate change for the surrounding area. You, you would be altering what the climate in this region is like. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the, that's the fertile basin of the United States. That's where we grow stuff. Right. And then I was thinking too, even with, with mountain ranges, those natural barriers, you have ecosystems present on those. Mm-hmm. And these walls, presumably they're, you wouldn't be able to create, or maybe you could. That would be the second phase two of the engineering project. 10,000 uh, years in the future, the mountain lion <laughs> has been replaced by the wall lion. Yes. The steps of the wall. The wall lion. The, the eastern um, wall lion. <laughs> right. I mean, it just gets more and more fantastical the more you try to f- rationalize and figure out how it would work. And it makes me think, again, of Redness's book, uh, Thunder and Lightning. And she talks about this microclimate that's been created in Mecca. Um, and, and, and Saudi Arabia has been trying to figure out engineering wise, like here's this, this walled area that is creating its own microclimate because the sun is beating down and there is no wind flow. And so they're trying to figure out like, how do you create weather in this one very specific area? Imagine that on a grand scale. Wow. On the plains. Huh. And I, I know, Julie, you've done a little bit of research into the effect of urban heat islands. Yeah, which is uh, it's interesting because we know that urban heat islands can um, can kind of put some of the atmospheric conditions into overdrive, particularly on a hot day. Right. Uh-huh. And trap pollution, for instance. But what we didn't know until recently is that some of that pollution is actually settling and then sort of burping up even more pollution. Uh, because what, what do you mean? Uh, p- pollution doesn't doesn't just hang out on our buildings forever. Um, it can, uh, especially in in warm conditions, it can belch back out more pollution into the atmosphere. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Because it's it's you know it's still interacting with other conditions, and so it's I guess the, the- point is. It's the secondhand smoke of atmospheric pollution. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah, it is. It's just like sitting out there belching, smoking on, you know. And and those and those conditions do uh, lead to weather changes in in the immediate area because because right. the air above your city is going to affect your weather there. Yeah. So the point is, like, once you <laughs> alter one thing, yeah. Again, it's that cascading effect that. Yeah. Why is happens. it why is it so hard to control the weather to get it to do the good stuff we want reliably but it's so easy to mess up the weather by accident <laughs> cuz everything that humans do is terrible <laughs> Oh, Literally come on. Everything. That's, that, that's not the spirit of this podcast. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the short answer. The, the long answer is, is that if we're, if we're not being, uh, kind and considerate to stuff, including ourselves, uh, everything we do is terrible. And many people are continually doing kind and considerate things to, to the planet and to ourselves and et cetera. And we have seen people change these kind of conditions by planting more trees and doing more stuff. And, and there's, there's lots of, um, city engineering. Okay. Well, let's, let's look at one more proposal for, uh, for future ways of controlling weather. And that would be sort of related to what we talked about with HARP, which would be a space-based microwave control of extreme weather patterns like hurricanes and tornadoes. Uh, and the, the connection it has to HARP, uh, which I didn't realize until I started looking into it was that this concept was proposed by the same guy whose patents for potential weather controlling devices 
partially started the development of HARP. Ah. Uh, th- those patents are the reason why there's so many fringe theories about HARP, even though the Department of Defense's feasibility study stated that the proposed design would not be powerful enough and would not be located in an ideal enough location to change weather patterns. Um, but, but this guy who proposed this stuff is Bernard Eastland, and he is a physicist. And in the early 2000s, he began suggesting a system that would send microwaves from satellites into uh, cold, moisture-heavy downdrafts of air in in thunderstorms that looked like they could be forming tornadoes. Uh-huh. And they'd heat the area and thereby change the motion of the air in the thunderstorm, hopefully preventing the, the formation of a tornado. He calls the concept the Thunderstorm Solar Power Satellite. And technologically, it's based in this research that NASA was doing into using satellites to collect solar energy and then beaming that energy to Earth using microwave transmission. Ah, orbital solar. That's one of the most interesting proposals for solar energy I've come across. Yeah, yeah. It's a ludicrously massive project, or it would be in order to be of a scale that it would be useful. Like, Like you're talking like 60 geosynchronous satellites mm-hmm. um but but so so it's it's using that technology yeah um i, I don't think that thing's ever going to happen personally um well one thing that it has in common with orbital solar is the idea of transmitting uh very powerful microwaves down to the surface of the earth from orbit sure which is uh you know when you think about being a resident of the surface of the earth you know you think that they hope they get their aim right <laughs> uh yeah yeah and and part of the whole the whole point of the NASA project is to make sure that the microwaves are not so focused that they would heat anything up uh-huh. uh to to specifically uh disperse them in in a way that would make them uh still useful but not burny um and but then again wouldn't they they would have to be able to heat to this this is one of the issues with the technology right um and and so <laughs> so it it gets back into that potentially like you can you can see someone twirling an evil scientist twirling their mustache so easily when you start talking about uh creating satellites that that heat up stuff on earth well i think that's a great transition to uh, a question i might want to end with which is um <laughs> I don't know why this is such a particularly difficult topic in a couple of ways. One of them being that it just seems jam packed with pseudoscience and sort of iffy leads, even more than most of the areas of science we talk about with these kind of crazy sounding proposals that you kind of get the sense that I don't think that would work. Or if it did, it might have really unpleasant side effects. Um, and then there, there's also such potential for, uh, bad usage of these types of technologies like it would be a wonderful thing to control the weather reliably for good without having unintended consequences like if you have an area that's having a drought if you're having a drought in california again or something you could you know call use cloud seeding to make it rain and i think california actually has done stuff to try to control the weather right they have yeah i mean actually private companies have cores beer yeah. Has employed people to cloud seed. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, How so, effective did they think it was? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I just know that Ben Livingston, who um, who ran some of the flights during Vietnam War, actually ended up doing that as a career afterward and wow. working for private companies. So there's a huge interest in it because, again, I think there's this idea that you could play Thor with with the world, uh-huh. play God. and Yeah. I think that it's 
fascinating for that reason. It's also a bit unsettling to people because I think that we have this idea that we have this wild natural world and to be able to uh, just harness it for, for our own reasons feels a little bit like, oh, are we really, have we really turned that point? I mean, we are in the Anthropocene. Are we, are we at that time in history where technologically we should, could do this? Mm-hmm. And, and are we, uh, ethically mature enough to handle that kind of power? Yes. Yes, I say we are. <laughs> No, I'm not sure either. I mean, I I think that's a big question. We, I mean, we've seen a a problem with our unintentional geoengineering, right? So we've been geoengineering the planet unintentionally through adding carbon to the atmosphere and causing climate change. It's too late now to ask, well, you know, are we, are we ethically ready to have the mat, the ability to massively burn carbon and put that into the atmosphere? No, we just have it and we're doing it. Um, so yeah, it kind of makes you wonder the same thing about doing intentional geoengineering and weather control and anything that can have massive effects on people who are not getting to make this decision for themselves. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that there's actual a moral imperative to do it, to, to actually geoengineer now yeah. that yeah. we're in a, a place where, um, our future is, is sort of riding on our ability to, uh, mitigate some of the, the the worst effects of global warming. Yeah, yeah, uh, b- because uh, we are seeing an an uptick, and it's and it's going to increase. People, people, uh, every scientist who has looked into it says we are going to be seeing more more storms and more devastating storms in the future because because of the effect of of climate change and global warming. Yeah, and that's a whole other area that we could get into that the fact that our our weather patterns are stronger and have changed and there is good reason behind that. And, uh, there are certainly, uh, scads of studies that will tell you that this, that this is the new normal extreme mm-hmm. weather patterns. Yeah. And that, that, that we're in experiencing an, an uptick in this because of human effects. Yeah, absolutely. That, that an uptick might have been on its way anyway, but, but this one in particular has been affected by human stuff. Which, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I don't mean to, I don't mean to sound all, all doom and gloom about this, uh, cause I, I don't think it is. And I, or I hope it's not at any rate. And I think that the research that, that these lovely humans who we have kind of been tearing down a little bit in this podcast, just because, you know, th- these are all, uh, solutions to such an enormous problem, um, that it's, it's hard to come up with something viable that can also get funded that, uh, that we can be sure will work. But, it's it's an interesting thing to look into, and we certainly hope that more people will look into it in the future. Well, I, I can say one thing we have talked about in this uh, two-parter that I can certainly feel good about in terms of human scientific progress is weather modeling. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. That that's our that's our one really serious, definite win that mm-hmm. we can feel good about, and and we don't have to be so worried about the ethical effects of it. I think it's or the ethical concerns of it. I think. Uh, it's good to know what the weather is going to be in the future. We've gotten better at it and we're continuing to get better at it. Okay. Well, I think that's going to be it for today, talking about the future of weather modification. But thank you so much for joining us, the audience. And thank you so much for joining us, Julie. It's been so much fun having you on. Yeah. Uh, Julie, can you tell our listeners, our wonderful, our wonderful friends out there about your new show? 
I can. And thank you again for having me uh, today. It's been great to hang out with you guys. Uh, the show is called The Stuff of Life. It comes out every Wednesday. Um, uh, the first episode is about the power of fear. And Joe is on that episode. The second episode is Glossophobia, the fear of public speaking. And Lauren is on that one. And uh, uh, you can check it out on podcasts providers like iTunes or really wherever you you get your podcasts. Yes, thank you for being here. Uh, you can also get in touch with you on social media. Heck yeah. Uh, the Stuff of Life show on Twitter and Facebook. Excellent. Uh, if you would like to get a hold of us on social media, our handle tends to be FW Thinking. Uh, we're on Google Plus and Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to send us an email, you can email fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. We hope to hear from you about any questions you have for us or Julie, uh, anything about weather modification, any topics you would like to hear in the future. And either way, we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.